G.K. Chesterton suggested that Jesus made three promises to his disciples. As his disciples, they could be completely without fear, they could be absurdly happy, and they would be in constant trouble. Friends, it's Morgan Snyder, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. We are in the midst of Advent. We are traveling closer and closer to the miracle of Christmas. As we dive into this podcast, I'm curious about this question. How do we learn this way? How do we become as the disciples were? This invitation to become the kind of person that is completely without fear, that is absurdly happy, and that is in constant trouble. Friends, there are the lives of men who have gone before us. These men were intended to pave the way, to model, and to invite us on intimate, specific levels back to the narrow road. I just love in 1 Corinthians when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I just pause there and say, that is bold. That is provocative to say a person can become the kind of person that their life is so consecrated to God that they have become so integrated and so mature that they say, do as I do, because I do as Christ does in me. Where do we find these men? What are they like and how do we follow in their ancient footsteps? Joseph, the father of Jesus, was perhaps one of these extraordinary men. He was fully human, a Jewish man who was at the beginning of his trade as a carpenter, pursuing the heart of a young Jewish woman who captured his dreams and imagination. It's where we find him when this great invasion of the kingdom of heaven finds him. It's important to pause and ask ourselves honestly, what must he have been like to be chosen to be the father of Jesus? And why would the story of the incarnation of God himself enter the world with such scandal, such accusation, such confusion, and such suspicion. Friends, it didn't have to be that messy. Why would God allow for such a story? Christmas after Christmas, I'm drawn more and more to the life of Joseph, and I see him as one of those rare men whose life embodies a man consented to fearlessness, consented to absurd happiness, and consented to the troublesome path of masculine initiation. Now, friends, just pause with me for a moment. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know the end of the story. He didn't know what was to transpire when he said yes to the audacious invitation that God called him up to. And when his world blew up with Mary's pregnancy, he could have punted. And in his culture, as a young Jewish man, he would have been justified. And yet he chose to stay in his story. He chose to stay in his assignment. He chose to stay rooted in his belief. And he chose to bet it all 
on God. Friends, as we near Christmas and the celebration of the creator of creation, the king of the universe, taking on all the limits and all the failings, all the trappings and all the fragility of the human experience, it helps to break through this familiarity and the soul-numbing assumptions we make to recover the wonder, recover the awe of it all. And friends, what, what would it be like to peer into this audacious invasion of the heart of God into the sea of humanity through the few souls that could say, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I was a part of the incarnation. Their eyes, their hearts, their doubt, their perseverance, their pain, and above all, they're plunging into the promise, as Hebrews suggests. Joseph is a man who's recovered the ancient path. He is a man who's out a bit in front of us. And what I've found to be one of the most compelling books on the incarnation, Richard Exley and Phil Boatwright bring us the full depth and breadth, imagination and awe of the life of Joseph through the indescribable gift. I want to read an extended passage just as a gift for your heart to enter into the story of Jesus through the heart of his young father and to find hidden in the perils and possibilities of Joseph's story is indeed every one of our stories as men, as fathers, as husbands, and as sons of the living God. And so friends, for this podcast episode, I want to invite you to sit back and relax, to release distraction, and I invite you to bring your attention and your affection back to remember and to receive the coming of our King made flesh and deposited among us in this most obscure of places in most seemingly insignificant of people. Let's enter into a piece of the indescribable gift. Leaving Mary, Joseph stumbles blindly into the night. For hours, he wanders the dark streets of Nazareth. His restless walking takes him well beyond the limits of the law, that which is referred to as a Sabbath day's journey. Never has he violated the Sabbath, never until tonight. Now it seems he cannot help himself. Mary's devastating disclosure has left him stunned, and he cannot be still. If the truth be known, he is shaken to the very core of his being. If Mary is capable of something like this, if she cannot be trusted, then who can be? Once more, he replays her words in his mind. I am with child. When first she spoke them, he could not grasp their meaning. It was simply unthinkable. Never in his wildest imagination would he have thought his sweet Mary capable of such a thing. To him, she was the paragon of virtue, the last person in the world who would be guilty of adultery. Now, her words hammer at him with killing blows, and in his imagination is a sadistic ogre. Although 
He has never so much as touched Mary's hand. He now imagines her in the arms of a secret lover. In his mind's eye, he sees her sharing kisses with him, giving that rogue all the love she has pledged to him. It is more than he can bear. And with a Herculean effort, he forces the images from his mind, but he cannot rid himself of the awful pain that eats at his heart. Turning down a narrow street, he stumbles through the darkness, seeking for an answer, an explanation. How could he have made such a mistake? Of Mary's piety, he has no doubt. Hers was a devout family with never a hint of impropriety. From all his observations, she seemed to possess the qualities of an ideal wife. Was it all facade? Was she just waiting for an opportunity before revealing her true character? Nagging at the edge of his mind is her explanation. I have never known a man. The baby I am carrying does not belong to an earthly father, but was placed in my womb by the Holy Spirit. He thrusts it from his mind, anger replacing the hurt that lays like a dead weight in his belly. Does she think him an idiot that he should believe such a tale? He knows how babies are made. Is it not the work of the Holy Spirit? Now he is consumed with an impotent rage. If he knew who the man was, he would tear him limb for limb. But what good would that do? It would not undo what was done. It would not restore Mary's chastity nor make her a virgin again. In an instant, he rails at her father. If he had not let her go out to Hebron, then none of this would have happened. What kind of father would trust his virgin daughter to the company of a caravan of merchants for a five-day journey? What kind of parent would allow his betrothed daughter to live unchaperoned among kin in a distant village. Having exhausted his anger, he discovers that he feels no better, neither affixing blame or venting his feelings, nor even his bitter tears can change what is done. Mary has broken her pledge of fidelity. She's betrayed his love, desecrated their marriage, and she now carries in her womb the bastard child of her illicit affair. And yet, even as he rages in his helplessness and grief, part of his heart yearns for her. Not for the adulterous Mary who has shamed herself and all those who love her, but for that pure, sweet girl who pledged her love and fidelity to him. Can it be that just hours ago, he was a happy man looking forward to seeing his espoused wife after an absence of three months? That man was anxious to tell his beloved about the room he had built on his father's house. The room was to be their own. That man could hardly wait to share with her his dreams for their future. That man had planned to show her the furniture he had built for them with his own hands, love molding every piece. But that man is no more. He was put to death by the killing words of the one he loved. In his place is the man he has become, a distraught creature who wanders the dark streets blind with grief. He's a broken thing, like the promises she made but didn't keep. He is just a shell, empty on the inside, as empty as the dreams he had once had for their future. All night long he walks aimlessly, 
through Nazareth's narrow streets, driven by a pain he has never known. And finally, exhaustion overtakes him, and he turns towards home. Day is just a faint hint on the eastern horizon when he slips into his father's house, being careful not to make a sound. Although he knows his parents will learn of Mary's condition soon enough, he is not ready to face their questions. The sun is bright when he finally awakes several hours later. For a moment, all is right with the world. From the other room, he hears the murmur of voices. Outside his window, children are playing, and in the distance, a dog barks. From years of habit, he mumbles sleepily, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As he stretches, a sense of foreboding settles upon him. Nothing definite, just a dampening of his enthusiasm. And then he remembers, and a cloud passes across the face of the sun, casting a dark shadow over his world. Bearing his face in his hands, he sits there, fighting back tears as the devastating memory sweeps over him. Desperately, he longs for the sweet oblivion of sleep, but he resists the temptation. Instead, he rouses himself, and after splashing cold water over his face, he dresses and prepares for the day. Donning his public face, he goes to join his parents. He must not let them know anything is wrong. Not yet. Not until he has figured out what he is going to do. The next few days pass in a daze. Like a sleepwalker, Joseph greets customers, fills orders, and works in the carpenter shop. All the while, his mind is in turmoil. What he must do is obvious enough, but he cannot bring himself to do it. Although Mary has played him for a fool, he cannot find it in his heart to hurt her. Though she's betrayed his love, he still loves her. Yet he cannot go through with the marriage either, knowing that she carries in her womb a child fathered by another man. Carefully, he considers his options. In Jewish marriage, there are three steps. The first step is the engagement, a contract arranged by family members. The second step is the betrothal, a public ratification of engagement. And during this period, the couple is considered husband and wife, though the marriage has not been consummated. The only way a betrothal can be terminated is by death or divorce. A young woman whose fiancé dies during the period is called a virgin who is a widow. The third stage is the marriage proper, when the groom takes his bride into the bridal chamber and consummates the marriage. This is followed by a wedding party. According to Jewish custom, he can divorce Mary, either publicly before a court or privately with no more than two witnesses. All that is required for a private divorce is the writing of the divorce certificate at the synagogue. Although this is hardly satisfactory, Joseph deems it is the best option given the circumstances. It will enable him to spare Mary as much humiliation as possible. Private, though the divorce might be, she will not be spared public disgrace, nor will her family. Nazareth is a small town. It will not take long for word to get around, and ultimately she'll be expelled from the community and forced to care for her child alone. The thought that she might end up like other women in her circumstances is almost more than Joseph can bear. Most of them either sell themselves into slavery or become prostitutes in order to support themselves. With everything 
that is within him. He longs to accept Mary's bizarre explanation at face value, but he doesn't know how he can. No matter how much he wants to believe in her purity, reason tells him a virgin does not become pregnant. And in a case like this, the scriptures are clear. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge evil from among you. After days and nights of painful soul-searching, Joseph at last decides to divorce Mary privately. He will arrange for two witnesses to meet him at the synagogue. Once the divorce document is prepared, he will deliver it to Mary and to her father. Hopefully, when that is done, he'll be able to put this unfortunate mess behind him. Of one thing he is sure, it will be a long time before he considers marriage again. Collapsing in bed, he cries out to God, Oh Lord, give me strength to do what is right in your sight. Having committed his future into the hands of God, he now falls into a deep sleep. Early the next morning, he makes his way towards the house of Mary's father. Though he slept well and awoke confident, this morning's business weighs heavily upon his mind. Will Mary understand, he wonders, or will she hold his actions against him? These and the host of similar thoughts plague him as he nears her father's house. And now his steps are slow and involuntary. His mouth is dry. Tension knots his stomach, forcing him to take several deep breaths in an unsuccessful attempt to calm himself. Finally, he knocks on the door. After what seems an eternity, it's opened by Mary's father. He asks to speak with Mary. Inviting him in, her father goes to call her. Nervously, Joseph studies the room, which is almost austere in its simplicity. That Mary comes from humble circumstances is readily apparent, but then so does he. His father's house is equally modest. Mary coughs discreetly, calling him from his thoughts. Her father is standing just beyond the door, clearly visible as custom dictates, but not intruding. As she steps into the room, a shaft of sunlight backlights her dark hair, creating a sort of halo effect. Though her face is in the shadow, Joseph cannot help but notice that she is unnaturally pale, making her wide eyes seem abnormally large. There is about her an air of calm resignation and certain sadness. When at last he speaks, his voice falters. Mary, he begins hesitantly. I've been doing a lot of thinking these last few days, and last night I was finally able to reach a decision. I hope you believe me when I tell you that the last thing I would ever do is hurt you. He lifts his eyes and risks a look at Mary. What he sees nearly tears his heart out of him. Though she is trying to be brave, her lower lip trembles and silent tears leave wet tracks down her pale cheeks. Her stricken look pierces him to the quick, 
and he wonders anew how he could ever have doubted her. More than anything, he longs to take her in his arms, but he dares not. Gathering his courage, he plunges ahead. Last night, the most amazing thing happened. An angel of the Lord came to me in a dream. Joseph, son of David, he said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. As Joseph speaks, Mary's face comes alive, dispelling his fears. There is no mistaking the thankfulness in her eyes. There is no hurt there now, no fear, just joy. Then, he tells her, the angel told me the most amazing thing. Yes, she says. He said, you will give birth to a son, and I am to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Reaching inside the folds of her garment, Mary lays hold of the worn parchment, tears of joy streaming down her cheeks as she walks across the room and hands it to Joseph. Not being an accomplished reader, he struggles with the words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Does this say what I think it says? Joseph asks in disbelief. It does. Zechariah copied it for me. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. And then she adds, although I have never known a man, I am with child. The baby I am carrying does not belong to an earthly father, but was placed in my womb by the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's doing. I am going to be the mother of our Messiah. The very words that upon first hearing devastated him now thrilled Joseph beyond belief. His sweet Mary is a virgin. She has not betrayed his love, nor violated the promises they made. Falling to his knees, he implores her, Can you ever forgive me for doubting your chastity? Hush, she says. Hush. Mary, he asks, will you come home with me today and live as my wife. I know we cannot consummate our marriage until after Jesus is born, but in every other way, we will be husband and wife. After making him wait for what seems forever, Mary finally replies, first, we must explain the situation to my parents. And then if my father agrees, I would be most honored to go home with you as your wife. Joseph's heart is singing as he goes with Mary to speak with her father. Later, they will have to deal with the rumors and innuendos, but for now, they are joyously content. Though there is much he does not understand, of one thing he is sure, God himself will take care of them. Friends, just pause with me for a moment and linger in that story. I wonder what it's like to put yourself in the shoes, in the heart, the mind and imagination of Joseph, the modest, simple Jewish carpenter. Perhaps the last man who would think that he would be chosen to father, to initiate, to provide care and shelter, covering, protection, and affection 
to the Son of God? What would it be like to be handed a blow that strikes at the core of what it means to be a man? What it means to be a husband? What would it be like to face the deepest, darkest betrayal of the human experience? What would it be like to be that alone? To feel that betrayed by God, by the woman you love? Every temptation to put God on trial. Every temptation to go to mockery or self-hatred. Every temptation to blame as a projection of pain. Every temptation to minimize, to hide, to retaliate, to go quiet. Friends, Joseph faced the impossible. He was an ordinary man assigned by God to the impossible, extraordinary task of being at his post in his generation, a tree deeply rooted. And he said yes. He said yes to a path and a process. He said yes to receive the joy and the contentment that no longer aligned with the circumstances of simply being a good man. He chose to dig down and draw his identity from the face of his father, to look up at the countenance of the heart of God, looking back at him, sharing gaze eye to eye, soul to soul. He chose to draw that identity from the deepest well, to have the courage to turn towards all the accusations, all of the misunderstanding, the cloud of suspicion, and say, I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. He chose to keep his heart open, open to the living God, open to the heart of the woman in which he was intended to offer his life, open to this child of mystery and wonder, confusion, and hope. He chose to become the kind of person that can live completely without fear, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Friends, as we near this Christmas season, it helps to break out of the familiar ruts and revisit the Christmas story afresh from the eyes and hearts, stories and lives of the souls that were there, the eyewitnesses of the incarnation. What I read from the life of Joseph is borrowed from the brilliant book, Indescribable Gift. And I urge you to pick up a copy and explore the other stories, the other eyewitness accounts, stories like Zechariah and Mary and the innkeeper. In it all, friends, I want to invite 
your hearts in the closing of a year and a turning towards the incarnation and the celebration to risk opening yourselves to the deep magic. So friends, we pray into the council uh, to, to the church of Galatia where it says, live freely, animated lives motivated by the spirit of God. And therefore we will not be fed by the compulsions of the self life rooted in self interest that's at odds with the free spirit. We want to open our spirits to the life of God, the maturing of God, the apprenticeship through God, where he brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity, a true deep peace that's deepening and lasting. We can develop a willingness to stick things out, a sense of compassion in our heart, compassion towards ourself, compassion to those entrusted to our care, even compassion to strangers. And we can cultivate a conviction that a basic holiness permeates all things in all people. God, we are asking that you would strengthen us in our inner spirit to become this sort of person, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ would live in us as we open the gates within our kingdom to invite Christ in. And so Jesus, I do pause and just say, what are the gates in my kingdom? that have become closed, that have become hindered, that have become blockaded or locked. Shine your light and show me where is it that you want to come. Jesus, I open the gates of my kingdom afresh to your kingdom. I ask God that my feet would be deeply planted firmly on love, and that I would increase in my capacity to know the extravagant dimensions of the love of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the invasion of the King of Kings into humanity, that I would risk to experience the breadth, to test its lengths and its limits, to rise to heights, and to say, I want the fullness of God. God, I want to have a wise and discerning heart, a God-listening mind and heart, a spirit that is attuned to your will. And I want to acquire a thorough understanding of the ways, God, that you work. I want to know intimately what you are doing and how you are doing it. But I want to live in union with you. I want to learn more and more how you work and learn more and more how to do your work with you. I want to, I pray that I would have the strength to stick it out for the long haul, not a grim strength of gritting my teeth, but a glory strength that God gives, a strength that endures the undurable 
and spills over into joy. And I name it over my life on this day. God, would you increase my strength that comes from you, that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy. I am asking for the manifest presence of Jesus Christ in this Christmas season in my kingdom and domain, that joy would be the banner, that joy would be the flag, that joy would be the song in my heart, that you would increase your joy poured out upon me, that you would increase my capacity to receive your joy. Jesus, I pause and I think of Joseph, your earthly father, once again. I think of the risk that he took. I think of how he could have punted. He could have quit. He could have said no. He could have given up. He could have hunkered down and tried to be a good man and just stuff his deep convictions in his heart, detached from the vine, with no nutrients, with no vitality that flowed from you. He could have chose self-salvation or self-initiation, but instead he chose to listen, to look. He chose curious consent. He chose to become the one who was being led. He chose to allow you to break the limits that he placed on who you could be and what you could do and how you could do it. He chose to say yes, to respond to your affection and your pursuit, engage in your orchestration of his masculine initiation. And so as Joseph has gone, as few others have gone, I choose to go. I choose on this day to renew my strength through your spirit, to receive the fullness of the family of God, to receive the Father and all his affection and provision this Christmas season. And I pray out of receiving that, God, you would move me in radical generosity. I pray that you would move me to be like you on the earth and to demonstrate my gratitude for what you have entrusted to my care to bless others. And Jesus, I receive more of you and all of your power to make the impossible possible. And I pray that you would bust the doors on limits that I've made. And Jesus, that your power would manifest in my body, my mind, soul, and spirit in relationships entrusted to my care in the fullness of my kingdom and domain, that your incarnation, that you're taking on the suffering of humanity and being without sin, that I too would take on the revelation that you are coming to provide your life, your inextinguishable life, Jesus, right in the midst of my suffering. And I can live in your life and through your life. And Holy Spirit, I invite more of you in this season, your breath to blow, to push out fear and shame, accusation, short-sightedness. Holy Spirit, you cultivate a recovery 
of the path of becoming. You set me once again on pilgrimage where I have found myself at a dead end, where I'm stuck. You say, come on, son, we can do this together. Holy Spirit, I invite you to teach me and guide me in your playfulness and your joy. Always new, always fresh. Holy Spirit, welcome your breath, your wind, your river of life. So friends, as we come to a close, as Chesterton said that Jesus offered to his apprentices, would you come with me into a life a life that we practice and grow over time, increasingly so, where we are without fear, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Friends, I bless you in your apprenticeship. I say a very Merry Christmas to you in this daring fellowship of the like-hearted. May you choose in this season to pause, to slow, to invite the deep magic of the kingdom of God to invade your ordinary everyday life and your holiday season a bit more. May he strengthen you with wonder and may you find yourself once again in awe of the coming of our King. And God willing, we will be back for more episodes in the coming year, reaching the many to find the few through the Become Good Soil podcast. As always, we'll close with a pause. Holy Spirit, have your way. Merry Christmas.